Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. Uh, I'm joined again today by Mark Dampier, who will be well known to many of you as the head of research at Hargreaves uh, Lansdowne, the UK's largest online platform uh, for private investors. Mark, I'd like to uh, welcome you and also to uh, talk about where we are in the markets and where we might be headed. Nothing difficult there. Nothing difficult there. The usual, <laughs> the usual simple matters of how can we go on making money from where we are. <laughs> but perhaps we should start by by looking backwards. I know it's a, it's, it's always a uh, a good thing to do. Uh, this time a year ago, twelve months ago, I remember talking to you, and it was at the point of maximum pessimism at that point last year. It was the market had fallen fifteen percent or something in the first six or seven weeks of the year. Everybody was. Gloomy about Brexit, they were gloomy about... Uh, they were gloomy about everything. Jonathan. Everything out there, <laughs> exactly. I remember it well, because I was actually on a Radio 5 interview with Meryn Somerset Webb, who was equally gloomy, and, and I protested that she was wrong, and that people should be more more upbeat. And uh, yeah, it was quite a feisty, uh, we had quite a feisty argument, it was very good. <laughs> I have to remind her. Unfortunately, you were on the right side of that argument. For once. No, not for once, <laughs> but you were on the right side of that argument. Uh, I'm very glad to hear that. Because um, in fact, since then we've had you know, the last twelve months have been pretty remarkable. I'm just sort of skimming through the figures here, but there's almost every market has gone up. Both bonds and uh, and equities have gone up. Uh, even commodities have gone up as well at the same time. Okay. And um, particularly, obviously, helped for UK investors by the fact that sterling has devalued after the Brexit vote. But in in terms of so just looking back on that twelve month period, I mean, can you remember a period when there's so uh, so many people's uh, expectations were confounded by results. I think it's been the most extraordinary time I can remember. I've, I'm not actually sure I can in 32 years, but the people have just been totally wrong. I mean, fund managers anyway have been arguing over the last four or five years have been creating their own bear markets anyway. Um, and actually, a lot of private investors have. Uh, not surprising given the perhaps media coverage and, and what I call this sort of continuing event disease, this concentration of looking at the next event that puts people off investing. It's not hard to be put off because I think we have such that behavioural science bit of aversion to losses is so much greater and the markets have gone up since 2008. People have just been expecting another setback. In fact, we have seen setbacks. I mean, obviously last year, the beginning of last year was, a, was quite a setback. Um, but 10 or 20, even 20%, falls in markets aren't really that unusual. Um, and, and I think what's extraordinary about the year, or the last 12 months particularly, is the continuation. It's got a little bit better more recently, I think, but the excessive pessimism around on everything. Um, and I think too much concern on geopolitical events, really. Uh, because it's quite rare for actually single events in practice to change the things that drive share prices and, and, and bond prices quite as much as people expect. Precisely, yeah, because companies get on with things. I mean, you know, you see them, but you just have, you see these events, but companies just say, well, right, okay, this has happened, what are we doing? In some, some many cases, it doesn't affect companies at all. Um, but companies are there and trying to make a profit. They're going to look around. They're not going to just sit there and say, that's it, and give up. Uh, and I think that's a mistake that, 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 people, that people do do with their own portfolios. I think there's far too much jigging around. I, th- I think today's world where it's so much easier to move money, uh, 
we at HL make it easier, so you could blame us as well, but we make it very easy. The speed of information that you see makes things, you know, gives you more information all the time, and the temptation to trade is that bit greater. And I still think that people just trade too much. Yeah, well, I think that's, that's certainly true, uh, and perhaps understandable for psychological reasons or behavioral reasons, as you say. Yeah. There's so much information out there giving you a reason to think about trading. But I do remember also uh, when we talked before, you said that, um, this is a couple of years ago now, but you said it's actually also one of the hardest times to give people investment advice. It is. Because we're in a kind of new new world where the old things that you can rely on no longer seem to be there. Um, and in practice, what's turned out to be the case is that if you just put your money into the stock market or whatever yes. it was, you didn't need to worry about it as it's turned out. Um, but do you have you changed your view that this is actually also a very difficult time to advise people? I know, I, no, I haven't actually at all. No, you're absolutely right. It is incredibly difficult because the sort of low-risk investments, if I can use that word, that's a phrase I don't actually use very often. Most clients think low-risk means no risk, so it's not a phrase I use. But if we look at well, if you look at bonds, I mean, gilts actually were more volatile, I think, last year than, than shares. So suddenly your kind of low-risk areas aren't really necessarily low risk. It tells you something about the changing nature of risk, that you can't just assume that what was low risk um, the last few years is, is low risk in the future. I, I could sort of say that about property. I mean, who knows? Property is that classic investment which everyone says, well, you, you can't fail. Except I remember selling a house for £20,000 less than I paid for it. So it doesn't always work. But I think we just forget, we forget our own history. And so gilts, government bonds have had the most fantastic run I guess really since about 1990. We could argue actually that the bond market really started when Volcker came on in around about 1980-81. So we've had this incredible bull market in bonds and people have called it too soon as well. Even the last yes. few years, the last four or five years, uh, people have called gilts at 4%, 5% yields and here we are. Well, even today, even though it's gone up since Brexit, it's about, I think the 10-year gilts at about 115. Yeah. Um, it's been up and down a bit, but it's still not that high, it still doesn't look great value. But so what do I say to a low risk investor? Well, what people have been doing over the last year is buying more and more absolute funds. See in the um, Investment Association statistics, I think for eight months running, absolute funds were the biggest, biggest Perhaps you should just say what an absolute return fund is, or well, what it claims to be, and what, what it, it actually claims, is. Well, yes, what it claims <laughs> to do is try and make you money out of virtually any situation. Yes. Uh, and make you, as its might, name might suggest, an absolute return, but of course, the, uh, the, the poor joke is that it doesn't always do that. And ironically, last year, people turned to these because they're worried about all these events. I think the average last year did about the average fund, obviously that is an average, did 2%. Yeah, actually, if you just bought a tracker, you would have made something in the region of 15 or 16% in the all share, in, uh, as an all share tracker. So it, it shows that actually low risk means, or so-called low risk, doesn't always make you any money either. Um, so. I think that shows you the state of investors' minds. I, you know, if you want, if you fast forward it to now, a slight thaw. Not sure it's, but it's still. I mean, I had an argument with a, a client the other. Well, I didn't have an argument because I think markets are very humbling. You don't argue with your clients. No, no. But you I have conversations. That, I think conversations, but 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 <laughs> indeed, but but I think uh, it's quite humbling market. So you, you know, who knows who's right? But he was he'd have, he was virtually cashed out. I was expecting this giant fall so many people are expecting. I, I have to say, I have no idea whether that's going to happen or not. 
and nor, nor in reality is anybody else. And we, we each have to make those sorts of decisions. I, I, I'm always very boring because I think people should have sufficient cash to see you through those hard times. Uh, and you should never be fully invested in, to that extent that you're going to have a, have a problem. But I think in terms of asset allocation, yeah, it's a very, very tough time to really advise clients through this, um, through this particular, because I think we've got a lot of manipulated type markets with central bank action, politicians. Right. Yeah, I mean, I look, at the, I look at the interest rate cut we had in just after Brexit, I thought, well, that was totally unnecessary. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it does worry me. And interest rates will go back up. We're certainly going to see it in the United States. Well, that's a very interesting point, isn't it? Because clearly you, what, what's happened since the, the financial crisis for certain is that we have seen interest rates fall very low levels and been kept very low deliberately by governments and central banks as a yeah. matter of policy. Now, I suppose the question is, if you were to uh, postulate what is going to change the environment in which we're, we're operating, yes. it would be if we actually suddenly started to go back to a world of rising yes. bond yields and, and due course interest rates going up. And that, that could be happening. Yes, it could be. Well, it is in the United well, States, and you could say that's the prime market. Normally, if the United States move starts to move, you'd expect other markets to follow maybe six to nine months later. Except I'm not just quite so sure that's going to happen this time. Don't see it in the Eurozone yet. And because of Brexit... In the UK, I don't see the Bank of England. The Bank of England could reverse the rate rise that it, the rate fall it, it, it had earlier on in um, after Brexit. But I just, I don't feeling that. I just don't think they are in that sort of mood to do so yet. That's the big threat: that interest rates suddenly start to rise quite dramatically. They, the, the, the central banks have got themselves in a major problem because I don't see how they're going to square the circle. Just think about it. If you're younger, perhaps if you're got children and got a mortgage just ask them what to what a two or three percent rise would do to their mortgage actually you might find they don't even know which might even be even more scary but the point is that if we had interest rates back at three or four percent i think we'd have a huge housing recession i think we'd have a real problem so i don't think we'll get rates back at ever higher for a long time ever than about two percent I'm not even sure in America they're going to go, I'm not convinced they're going to go that much higher. The Fed's moving at the moment because sort of it can and wants some ammunition for when there may be problems. You know, we may, you know, but despite Trump or whatever, or despite because of him, we may have a problem there later in the economy, 18 months down the line. Well, they want some ammunition to, to be able to bring rates down. I'm sure they're not convinced by, uh, by Trump any more than most of us are. Before we get on to that subject, which is a very interesting one, um, but surely there is another danger now lurking in the undergrowth, as it were. If you're right and gov governments and central banks are reluctant to put up interest rates for the reasons you've described, yes. um, we are also seeing, though, you know, labour markets are quite tight, commodity prices going back up again. Um, in some countries, we've had devaluations. That traditionally would point to the threat of rising inflation. And we've seen inflation yeah. rates going up on a on a on a year by year basis. Um, but do you see that as a, as a threat? Because if that happens, uh, we've got a whole range of different problems yes, to deal with. Yes, we have. Um, not yet do I see it as a problem. We did have inflation, forgive me because I can't remember the exact date, it might have been 2011, we had inflation at 5%, Yes. and the bank still didn't move. And yes. that's, if you remember, as oil prices were very high. Oil prices have backed up, but they're not, not where they, they're not where they were. The, the jury's out. I just, yeah. I just don't know. At the moment... Um, yes, we're going to get higher inflation in the UK, but I don't think the bank's going to move. As I said, I'm not 
I'm still not sure how they're going to square the circle. And if you're going to make the bear case, the bear case is they the central banks lose the plot entirely. Some might say they already have. And then you have the real problem. If you want a real bearish scenario, this is more of a sort of William Littlewood type, uh, type thing at uh, who runs the Artemis Strategic Assets Fund. Actually, you see bond defaults down the road. Or by uh, governments or by... By governments. By governments. Yeah, yeah. Because they just can't possibly... Have, he has a huge short on the Japanese market. Yes. As well as a slightly smaller one here on the UK. I have no idea where he's right. And he's been wrong completely for the last five or six years. But I have to say, as we progress down this road, you start to kind of feel, well, where is this going to... Where are we going to end? And at some stage, yes, they're going to have to push rates up in the UK. But they're going to have to do it very gently. To get, to get over the fact that they've actually lent to far too much money in the mortgage markets. Yeah. And so everyone who thinks that housing is safe, well, I'm think not again. Sure. Think again. Yes. So what that seems to suggest to me is that there are basically two risks out there. One is that we get a period of in inflation. And, and as you say, most a lot of people don't actually have much experience of high inflation, apart from that little blip yeah. you mentioned for the last 20 years. There hasn't been much inflation around. So one, that's one risk. The other risk, of course, in the other direction is that we do actually get a recession of some sort, yes. whether that's related to Brexit or related to global trade or whatever it might be. These things do happen. They haven't abolished the business cycle. No, and uh, so we might get a recession. Indeed, some would argue we're probably overdue one now. Um, and that in turn is going to create a different problem, which is we'll see, we'll see um, uh, equities doing badly and, and, and bond yields falling again and so on. We'll go through that yes. kind of cleansing process. So there's lots of genuine uncertainties out there. But we've oh, still I, got to make decisions about what to do. Precisely. So I, I don't, don't think I'm being um, complacent in any way in what I'm saying. I'm, I tend to be a more, slightly more of an optimist um, than, than a pessimist because generally speaking, that pays relatively well in stock markets. Yes. They do tend to go up more of the time than they do go down. It's just that when they, this loss aversion thing or you get a really big fall, then that is particularly difficult. And... and Aging demographics aren't helping. More and more people are relying on pensions for their for their income as well. So you can understand why people are more cautious. And looking now, and in wearing your your hat as head of research at the UK's largest platform, as I mentioned, for private investors, what do you detect about the um, attitude of investors over the shorter term? I mean, we've had a very strong run in markets. That normally tends to make people more optimistic uh, against what is generally a very pessimistic background. But have, have you seen that? Well, Are they investing? Well, no, that's, that's, well, they, the answer to that inevitably is yes and no. But 2016 was a remarkable year. Markets were broadly making new highs everywhere. Now, in, a, you know, in my 32 years, that normally means that investors start to buy a lot more. In fact, I start to get a little bit nervous. But they haven't, or they, have, they hadn't at all in 2016. If, again, if you see the... Uh, investment association statistics, more money was coming out than going in. And that's, that hardly ever happens when markets are going up like that, um, which tells you what an extraordinary time this is. I would detect a bit more optimism more recently. And I guess if you wanted to be, that might make me slightly more cautious. We have had a hell of a run yeah. um, from those particular lows, but we've had a really good run just from sort of Brexit. But do you know, I think the market could still, if I use an awful phrase, melt up rather than melt down. Now, that doesn't mean we don't get a correction first, by the way. We could easily see a correction of 10% in a market that's risen like this really strongly. But 
Again, here's the problem. Who knows when that might or might not be? And a little bit like Brexit, a lot of people were focused on that. They might have got that right in that they cashed in portfolios, but it lasted two days. Two days. So exactly. here's my question to those listening. <laughs> if you were one of those clever people who cashed out, did you buy back in on Friday afternoon or, or Monday? Because after that, the market basically went up uh, after. And I don't think people believed it. Um, so that's the thing. You've always got to make two decisions. And that's a sell and a buy. And I'm, if one of those goes wrong, you don't make any money. And, and usually one of those goes wrong. And then you have plenty of time to repent at leisure. Yes. As I say about <laughs> another, another aspect of life. I want to just ask you quickly about Trump, though. I mean, because there's so much focus on Trump at the moment. It's almost more focus than Brexit, yes. even, if that's possible. Um, but, of course, uh, what we're actually seeing is, if, if you think it's related to... Uh, Economic activity, that's been improving everywhere around the world. Markets have been going up all around the world, particularly strongly in the US, but, but not just in the US. So maybe there's something bigger than Trump going on here. And while he gets all the attention because of his, uh, how should we say, um, uh, remarkable uh, personality and, uh, and behavior, uh, it may not be just about that. This kind of rally we've seen may be about more than just Trump. Or do you think it is a genuine, uh, is, there, is there a genuine where you can rationalise how strong the markets have been since he took over. I don't think you can ever rationalise, like you certainly can't rationalise Trump in any way. I'm not sure no. you can ever ra completely rationalise markets because we kind of all look for, well, everyone looks for a reason for a market to go up or down. But, you know, there isn't one sometimes. I always think of 1987 when the market fell and someone, one of my youngsters said to me, well, what was the, why did it fall? Yeah. Now, it's a perfectly reasonable question to ask. But, you know, to this day, no one really knows. There was vague talk about the trade numbers in the United States, something to do with the Germans at the time. Yes. But there wasn't. And I could go back to technology. Was there, when that sort of fell late February, I think, early March in 2000, was there a particular, was there an event? No. Perhaps it was the uh, roadrunner thing where it, it go off the cliff and it keeps on running. Yeah. And, then it came, and then suddenly looks down and thinks, oh, my God. And the market, so it's a sentiment. We're all human. And somewhere someone says, that's it. So I, I, but I don't see that as over yet. The demographics in the West suggest to me that, um, that I don't think we're going to go back to rapid inflation at the present time. That's what I think in the, in the longer run. They'll get those waves and cycles, but I don't think we're going to get anything. If we're those who are old enough to remember the 70s or 80s, early 80s, I, I don't think we're going to get there for quite some time. Demographics, to me, of an ageing society don't suggest we're going to get there in any way. But what people do need is still, they still need income. And, and the market still provides that in, in, in quite a bit, in, in droves actually. You could still get 4 or 5% yields. Right. Well, let's talk a little about that. Um, as you say, uh, a lot of people, particularly in the current environment, low interest rate environment, you get nothing from the banks or, or your savings otherwise. Um, are looking for yield, as we say, the, the ability to get an income out of an investment. Um, and the UK market looks quite attractive on that on that ground. Not as attractive as it has done on no. some occasions, but it does look quite attractive. But the argument against that, I wish you here, is that a lot of these companies are over-distributing their, yeah. their dividends. Do you buy that argument? Well, I think you could argue that amongst some of the oil stocks, um, like BP, BP and, Shell. and Shell particularly. Although... Yeah, I love talking to fund managers because I saw Clyde Beagles recently who runs a J.O. Hambro fund who completely refutes that argument and says no, and it has a, he has them in his portfolio. 
uh, and the portfolio in the last year has done particularly well. So, you know, what you find is that you, in terms of a portfolio, whether you're running shares or you're running funds, you just want some different things that don't correlate with each other. Because that's a perfectly reasonable view. I mean, Neil Woodford doesn't have Shell or BP for that particular reason. Yeah. Um, but then he hasn't had banks for a long time. Maybe in his new fund, he might have a bank for the first time. We'll, 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 we'll wait and see. Right. Um, but, but yes, I think there's, there is some, there may be some over-distribution. I think the worry more is that companies aren't investing in investing for the future. And that's your future dividends, really, if you think about it in the really long run. And I think that's a danger. But that's, because, that's partly because of a ridiculous interest rate policy now, which I think has gone on too long. I do think we should have nudged rates up a slightly and, and got out of this ridiculous, almost zero interest rate policy. I mean, one of the arguments about that, what's wrong about a zero interest rate policy, is that it actually does create sort of zombie companies that are yes. just, just carry on as they are. They don't have any effective competition against them. And uh, they just go on paying out until uh, until they find out they haven't got a business anymore. No, that's, that's, that's <laughs> true. That's more likely to be true of some of the larger caps than even the smaller companies. I mean, you know, smaller company, one of the great areas to invest is actually smaller company. Our own analysis shows worldwide that small cap high yield is a good place to be. Yeah. Um, and I would still suggest, I know it's more risky, it's more illiquid or whatever, but if you're a long-term holder, and particularly if you want income over next 10 or 20 years, why are you worried about wanting to cash in the, the actual capital side? Because it's the dividends you want to live off, and more and more people want to do that. So that's what I would concentrate more on. Uh, if people concentrated on that rather than the capital side, I think they'd actually be more fully invested. I mean, I love dividends. As you grow older, you love dividends more than anything else, really. I like those. I love seeing those come into the account. And you have got from time to time. We have seen some quite extraordinary anomalies. I mean, a year ago, Shell. You mentioned Shell was was yielding almost eight percent at yes. one point, which is some extraordinary figure, really, for a company of that was, size. It I was. And, and look how how strongly it rallied in the yeah. whole commodities. I think it was one of the best performing. I think it rose about sixty five percent in two thousand sixteen. Yeah. So, you know, wasn't expected at the beginning of the year to no. get that sort of, that sort of gain. Um, and so that kind of tells you there's an awful lot of noise in the market and I think we're all susceptible to that noise and just sometimes as I think I've said to you there are times we really you just want to go and go on the golf course or go fishing or do whatever you like to get you out and stop looking at the screen I, I'm, I'm convinced that the more you look and read the more likely you are to trade and that's when you make the poor decisions so when you buy funds if you're buying funds I always think buy two or three different types of funds that don't call, try and find a lack of certain correlation. So Clive Beagles works quite well with Neil Woodford because they're, they're not, doing quite differently. They're nearly poles apart yeah. from what they do, and one has a good year and another one doesn't. So Clive had a very good year last year, and Neil didn't. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean that one's worse or better or worse than the other. One one's lost the plot. It's just a different thing. I don't, I don't want all my managers doing the same thing. That's not the purpose of a portfolio. Well, just think about that. I mean, we've talked about this in the past. Um, and in your book, uh, Effective Investing, you talk about it, um, which is, with your, with your own money, if I just ask you this, Mark, how many, how many funds do you own in, say, your pension fund? Yeah, I probably have, probably actually have too many. Right. Um, probably got about 25. Really? As many yeah. as that? Right. Yeah, I really could. I am trying to think about, you know, reducing that. I'm moving more of my money to, I think I've told you before, into more income-orientated investments as well. But I probably have too many. I think... Quite difficult to get rid of them, isn't it? Once you've once you've got it is them. if they're doing well. Yeah. And and actually, my holdings, a lot of the holdings I have are about five percent. But I have a number of holdings which are 
perhaps a little bit more specialised or where which I I would never have very very large holdings. Um, so yeah, I probably got you. Yeah, I'm probably right to censor myself for having slightly too many too many holdings. Now, you also it's also the case though. I think that you you don't have many index funds in your in your personal portfolio, and Hargreaves no. Landon is is quite well known as being, you know, you you uh, you obviously. Um, well, I'm privileged. Research a lot of active funds yeah. and, and so on, but uh, it's, uh, but yet yes. we have seen this trend towards index funds and it's and, not to, go away. and ETFs. And you think that's that's I here think to stay? And I think we're going to see much greater competition. You know, I think there's going to be. I think there's a juggernaut coming down the road in terms of costs and bringing costs down, which is good to the consumer. Yeah. Um, you could say it's bad for us. Well, no, actually, if if we can broaden the market out and get more people involved, I think that's good. And I'm a consumer as well. Um, yes, do I buy? I have active funds. Well, I am in a privileged position at HL in managing to see some of the very best fund managers, and that makes it easier. But in places like America, there's a lot to be said for an index fund. Very hard to find really good performing fund managers. So I, you don't take it that I'm against passive investment because I'm not. I think it's important to to sort of believe in the way you're investing on and, and, and feeling comfortable with the way you're doing. So I wouldn't not say that I'd ever not buy a, a passive fund in, 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 in any way. I think the two can coexist very well together. Um, I said that small cap high yield was a great area. Now, it's not a great area covered by passive. No, you can't you really find it. You can't, really fi- you can't really find that. So again, I, I, I think you want to get out of this rather zealot sort of I'm all passive, or, or I'm I, 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 and and try and just figure out a bit like investment trust and unit trust. Just take the best of both worlds. I mean, you can't find an RIT Capital Partners really in the unit trust world, for example. Yep. Um, but I can, but equally, I can find some great small cap managers in the UK unit trust world, like such as Dan, yeah, Dan uh, Nichols at um, uh, Old Mutual and Harry Nimmo. But they run some of them. Harry Nimmo runs an investment trust as well. So. As I said, it's sort of horses for courses. I'm, I think it's much more important to get people involved in investment, fighting over which is the best. If I was a new investor, gosh, how hard, when all I can see is two experts arguing that one's better than the other. Actually, yeah. all, all that happens as a new person is you just take a step back and think, don't think I want to get involved in the first place. They can't even agree amongst themselves. Well, it certainly makes logical sense to say that uh, it obviously makes more sense to put your money into actively managed funds where there is a demonstrable evidence that they have actually yes. outperformed, and less in places where there is demonstrable exactly. evidence that they, exactly. they haven't outperformed, and there are like too, the US. And yeah. there are too many poorly active, I mean, I've never made a secret of it, that there's thousands of active funds, mostly, yeah. which are useless. Yeah. Um, and so there is only 5 to 10%, I mean, I'm pulling that slightly out of the, the air, but there is only a few people that are worth following, but you have to take some time. And I, and I think also, if you had a bunch of new fund managers in front of you, no record, no, it's very hard to distinguish there who might do well. But you don't, you know, you can wait and bide your time. And, you know, obviously people use Neil Woodford, but it's Nigel Thomas. There's lots of other investors, you know, fund managers have been around a very long time. And, okay, you wouldn't have got through on the ground floor with them. But if you bought them even 10 or 15 years ago, they would have done you pretty well for your, your portfolios. In fact, very well indeed. But do you think, though, that uh, there are, as we know, there are a lot of cost pressures now on fund management companies, yes, and pressure from people like yourself to on them to bring down their yeah. fees, yes, um, uh, and that's I think we're seeing evidence of that. But do you think that's got a long way to run that whole yeah, story? 
Yeah, I, I, we, I mean, we fight the active fees every day. We, I get a feeling in the marketplace, we're actually one of the very few, if not really the only one, who really is trying to get fees down. And we're arguing, now post-RDI, I was never involved in, the, in that cost argument particularly because there was a sort of Chinese wall between my recommend, you know, between recommendations and costs. But now I'm much more involved in that and we talk about that nearly every day. So we, and we are getting costs down. I mean, well, Woodford's a good example of start getting in at 60 basis points, but can we get it cheaper? Yeah, I think, I think we can eventually get these fees down to, dare I say, 35? 35 basis points, 0.35%. Yeah, yeah, I, I, think that's, I think that's the trend. And I think competition from the likes of Vanguard are, are going are gonna, to, are, are, will work. What you have to remember for the active side is that they've got legacy issues and it takes time um, to, to bring those costs down because it's a really big hit just to try and do that straight away. But they are, they are gradually but surely getting there. And that's all good for investors. And so, um, uh, as we come to the end of this uh, fascinating conversation, uh, if you look at where we are at the moment, uh, and if you were, uh, I've put you on the spot about this, but if you look around at the various asset classes and so on, you mentioned one you like a lot, which is small account uh, yeah. yield, high yield. Uh, are there any other areas where you think uh, the opportunities look somewhat brighter than the others without going overboard about you know, what that might well, be? Well, I, I, don't, I, think I'm, I don't think I've ever changed that much because the area that fascinated me when I first started and still does is really emerging markets. And you can divide that into frontier as well if you want to and, and Asia. But I still think that's the area in the longer run. If, I, if I'm, uh, I'm about to become a grandparent in April for the first time, so I'll obviously well, get to <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to put some money there. And so money for my, I don't know whether it'll be grandson or daughter, I don't know at the moment, but we'll definitely go in that area. Partly, again, I, demographics, I think, are very important. And generally speaking, although Chinese demographics aren't particularly good, in many places in Asian emerging markets, they're dramatically much much better and that's a really important thing it's the younger populations that are going to drive economic growth so places like india are fascinating so share prices well india has actually had a big setback due to their um, interesting policies interesting policies on money and <laughs> whatever but but that's an opportunity to buy some i think if anything so yeah. so asia emerging markets i think is and, and they are actually more cheaply valued than than here in the developed countries now so I think that's that's still an area to plumb for. But if you'd asked me that five years ago, ten years ago, I've still said the same thing. I, I, I don't I, I don't change really in that way. I think um, those markets still look dynamic to me and still look really exciting. So they will be more volatile than, than perhaps other markets. Well, well they maybe may, not the way that things well, are going. Well, at the not moment. necessarily given, yeah. given what's here. <laughs> but obviously, you know, if the United States catches a cold and the market, you cannot say the market's cheap there. Everything tends to come down. Yeah, so yeah. The, mar the, the American market is still the prime market. So if that catches a cold, everything else does. But it makes everything else cheaper. Uh, and those sorts of areas become very good value. Of course, if you're investing for grandchildren or whatever, it doesn't really matter. In fact, it, it works in your favour over that over a long period of time. If you can buy cheaply, more cheaply over over the course of the years and drip money in, that's tremendous. And of course, at the moment, if you're a UK investor, you're helped by the fact that uh, our wonderful currency has been uh, either yes. trashed or weakened, depending on your <laughs> on your point of view. 
uh, <laughs> most notably because of Brexit. Um, but uh, there are quite a lot of people who think that actually the pound is now undervalued. And well, probably... I, think you, I, think, I think you could argue it's undervalued, but it's hard to see uh, how, it's going, to how it's going to get back up at the moment, right. given the whole Brexit you know, timetable that we've got. I can't see that. But I do agree. I think there's, a, you know, yet again, another danger. You just think sterling's always weak. Well, we have been, at, you know, I can remember in 1985, we were almost at parity to the dollar. And then, lo and behold, about three or four years ago, I think we were at 220, 225. So you need to be careful. But I would never invest on a currency point of view anyway. I, 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 I mean, I bought Japan, but I didn't buy a hedge. Uh, you didn't buy a hedge class. I didn't buy a hedge class. And it worked, interesting, is another thing. It worked really well for a year or so. Yes. And then that... And then it, you, lost your, you lost it all again. Yes. So in fact, you were just as well to be in an hedge card. You've just got another decision to make, and it nearly always goes wrong. Currency is the worst of all things to try and make a forecast or make money from. Very good. Well, on that note, Mark, thank you very much. It's been most fascinating. I look forward to see how Pleasure. the next 12 months works out. Probably won't be quite as good as this one, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. We can, we can hope. <laughs> we can Let's hope. see. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. You have been listening to a Moneymakers podcast hosted by the author and professional investor, Jonathan Davis. An archive of all our podcasts can be found on the website, www.money-makers.co and also on iTunes and several other popular podcasting channels. We are an editorially independent business with a primarily educational purpose. If you are interested in investment and have enjoyed this conversation, I do hope you'll join me again for more discussion of current topics with leading professional investors. Thank you for listening.